Welcome to the Apple of Truth, our bi-weekly podcast where we nerd out about our favorite TV shows. Currently, we're covering every single episode of Good Omens, based on the book by Sir Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. And because we are who we are, we focus on details you didn't need, but for sure deserved. I'm Lena. And I'm Vero. And today we're talking about Season 2, Chapter 4, The Hitchhiker, featuring the Minnesota Nazi zombie flesh eaters. And I take issue with this being a Minnesota because it's the other way around. The Nazi zombie flesh eaters is the episode and the hitchhiker is the Minnesota. Uh, you could even call it Chapter 4, Nazi zombie flesh eaters, featuring the hitchhiker for two minutes. It's a little bit more than that. I'll give them that, but not by much. I was very upset with that, which showcases itself in my summary, because this episode is basically the Minnesota with some fixing on the outside. While we're in the Blitz, we get to experience some demon politics, some Nazi zombies, and some genuine ineffable flirting. Adorable. Excruciating is the word. There are good moments and bad moments. And painful moments and I still want to fucking strangle Aziraphale. Oh god, we're gonna have to talk about that. Because I feel like they are portraying him differently a little bit than they did in season one. He is much more careless. Yes. And I am not loving this. He is careless in his friendship even with Crowley and he is careless with everything around him and that does not really track with how we understood him in the book or in season one so they better save this they better fix this I need Aziraphale to care about Crowley and not just about being whatever he is right now yeah all right well let's move over to the British part of the episode Enough complaining, let's do British. <laughs> we shall be complaining for a long time to come, I'm sure of that. However, I had a couple of different options in this episode, but I ended up going with the first one that I came across, just because I wasn't 100% of, on the meaning, and I got a little confused there, but turns out to be great, because, well, let's get into it, let's see why. My word of the episode is bemused. Okay, I did not see that coming because your description sounded exactly like my process. So I was like, oh no, did you end up with the same possible words? But no, I did not go with bemused. So please, what did you think it meant? I heard it and without any context, I was like amused, confused, what's going on? But what it actually means is puzzled or dazed. Okay, I did not know that. I thought bemused was very similar to being amused. Now, remember saying this because you're not wrong. However, you are also <laughs> wrong. Okay, okay, welcome to my life. I'm right and wrong at the same time. Perfect. Uh, first appeared in uh, 1734 and I believe it was mentioned by the Pope. Obviously, there was probably mentioning from before that, but he is the first one to put it in writing. It has two parts. We are, have the part B, which is an intensifier, and muse, which as a verb can mean absorbed in thought or gaze thoughtfully at. I knew that. Right. Uh, you could 
probably draw a line towards muses in Greek and stuff like that as well, which is like inspiration and thoughtfulness and shit like that. We could go into that. We could sit here for 20 minutes. But originally, this is connected to musum, which meant muzzle in medieval Latin. Muzzle as in? Yes. Yeah. Ooh. On your okay. Face. And then uh, transformed into old French muse, uh, which meant to meditate or waste time. And with that moved over to English, it became a muse in the old English. Now, bemuse and amuse as you mentioned at the beginning, are connected indeed. And they both come from the word muse and, and being thoughtful and, you know, dazzled and puzzled and all of these kind of fun things. It's the same root. But bemuse is now much closer to the original meaning than amuse. So amuse changed its meaning into lightly entertaining and things like that, while bemused basically stayed kind of the same of thoughtful, um, puzzled, dazed, stuff like that. So there you go. You were not wrong while you were also a little wrong. I'm gonna take with me that the Pope is the one who wrote <laughs> bemused down for the first time because that bemuses me. <laughs> <laughs> that bemuses me. It amuses and bemuses me. <laughs> bemuses. I wonder if bemuse is from that. <laughs> Hopefully not. Um <laughs> So your intro made me think that we might have some of the same words. And I actually thought that your picked word was my first discarded word, which was improved when relating to alcohol. Because that is what Crowley said with the when he's delivering the, the devil's juice or something. But I had so many options that I didn't go with that. So two of my other options were jiggery pokery, of course. Ah. And plenipotentiary. It's part of Shax's title. When she counts down, I'm Shag's demon of the fifth house, la 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 la, plenipotentiary, la 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 la. So I was like, what? But both of those terms turned out to be incredibly boring. Yeah, proofing alcohol is very normal. Yeah, and jiggery-pokery comes from Scottish. I didn't want to do yet another Scottish word. And plenipotentiary just comes from all-powerful, basically, because it's like power of attorney. So it's like... Nice. So it's boring. So I went with something not boring because I went with conjurer. How is that not boring? Ha <laughs> So what I thought it means. I thought a conjurer is a magician who creates stuff from thin air. What it actually means is a conjurer is one that performs feats of sleight of hand and illusion. A magician, a juggler. A person who conjures spirits or practices magic. A magician? Or a person who practices leisure domain, which I had to look up because I didn't know what it is. And leisure domain is another word for sleight of hand. Like, <laughs> I, oh, yeah, okay. because okay, so. yeah, that's French. Yes, it's French, of course. Le leisure domain. Yes, exactly. I don't even know how to pronounce it in English because I'm pretty sure it's not a leisure domain. But I don't care. So. <laughs> Ledger the man. Yeah, Ledger the man. No, um, okay, so, sorry. <gasps> where does it come from? It comes from mid-14th century, where it was an enchanter, a magician, 
from the Anglo-French word conjurer, with O-U, from Old French conjureur, a conjurer, magician, exorcist. <laughs> here we go, here we go. Not bringing things in, but taking them out. Yes. From Ooh. the verb Latin conjurator, from conjurare. And then it tells me, go to conjuration. So we have to leave conjurer behind and go to conjuration for more information. <laughs> and it writes. So I moved over to conjuration because I already had taken so many detours. And conjuration, just as conjurer, is also from the 14th century. And it comes from conjuration, a conspiracy, a plot, act of plotting. <laughs> also, calling upon something supernatural, the act of invoking a sacred name, invocation of spirits, magic spells or charms. <laughs> What? Okay. So, and confusion. Exactly. We're now in proper conspiracy magic bullshit. It's beautiful. That was taken once again from French, still very related, conjuration, which sounds more Spanish when I say it, which is a spell, an incantation, a formula used in exorcism. And that was taken from Latin conjurationem, a swearing together, a conspiracy. And in medieval Latin, it actually meant enchantment. Ooh, so like that would be a very much a word that Rudolf II would use when he was trying to do his magic-y thingies in the Prague castle. Hmm. Yeah. And so the noun of action, so the enchantment, is taken from the past particle stem of conjurare. And conjurare means to swear together, to conspire. And that is assimilated from com, which means with, together, like mm -hmm. con, and jurare, to swear, which is taken from jus juris, which means the law, an oath. So fucking conjurer, a fucking magician who does sleight of hand, actually originates from people swearing an oath for conspiracy. Wow. And that is mind-blowing. That makes so much sense, though. Yes, but it's still so wild. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And this is why I went with this. <laughs> Conjurer. Love it. Ta -da! <laughs> Now, bring us into the funs and facts so we can get into this episode. Okay, so this funs and facts and facts and funs are actually fun because I actually got to use some bits that are not Amazon trivia, but IMDb trivia. Ooh. Yeah, I know we're not used to this. People who listen to our Lucifer episodes are very used to this, but here we go. So you remember last episode, I think I cleared up the confusion with the additional writers. The Minnesotes are written by other people than Neil Gaiman. This minisode, which is of course a megasode, is written by Jeremy Dyson. And if you're British, you have heard this name. Because he has the most TV writing credits among the three Minnesota writers so far. He wrote for Funland, Psycho Bitches, The Tracy Allman Show, but most importantly, he wrote for The League of Gentlemen. Mm. Gonna come back to that. He was also part of the script and continuity department for various shows, which I did not even know existed, but I really appreciate it. That's the department that Lena would... Yes, that would be my area of expertise. Nitpicking. Ah, oh, I'm here for it. <laughs> His trivia section on IMDb is actually so curiously funny that I wanted to include most of it. Let's get started. 
He jokes that the reason he does not act in the League of Gentlemen, he's actually played by Michael Sheen in the League of Gentlemen, is that he is allergic to halogen lights. In reality, he believes that unlike the other three gentlemen, he has had no formal training and is not good enough character actor. Aww. When writing for the League of Gentlemen, he writes for Mark Gettys. Mark Gettys is in this episode. And jaw drop. Shearsmith writes for Pemberton. Who are in this episode? Again, I do not understand how this keeps happening. These coincidences. He plays keyboard in a band called the Rudolph Rocker. Oh, God. In 1997, along with his fellow League of Gentlemen, Steve Pemberton, Mark Gattis and Reese Shearsmith, he won the Perrier Award of the Edinburgh French Festival. They became the first sketch group to win since the awards began in 1981. The first sketch group to win was the Cambridge Footlights, which featured Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Tony Slattery, Emma Thompson, Paul Dwyer and Paul Shearer. So what a mantle to take on. I am like having chills just you listing the names. And I was like, oh no, oh no, oh no. It's getting better. It's getting better. And last but definitely not least, curiously funny, on his trivia section, Jeremy still sucks his thumb. I don't know if it's true, but it's written on his IMDb page. Which 100% makes it true. Like, you know, we all know that that are only true facts and never any misguided Everything is fully true on IMDb. So... Just in case I didn't make it clear enough, this episode obviously features Steve Pemberton, Mark Gettys, and Reese Shersmith from The League of Gentlemen, who are all acting in that. The dude who's writing the Minnesota is not acting in it, but he's writing for it. So once again, here he's writing for it. Ta-da! Yay! And that concludes a very curious fact and funs from my side, unless you have something else. Previously on Good Omen. Gabe lost his memory and powers and now is Jim. Crowley and Azurfel are hiding him in the bookshop while they figure out what happened. Shucks is suspicious of them and is frankly becoming quite scary. All the while we continue to relive the husband's past through minisodes that aren't really that many. Yeah, I feel like they keep getting longer. They keep taking up more and more space. So I'm hoping we're going to get some actual plot movement in the minisode or more of the actual episode in the last two episodes of the season. Oh my God. I actually know that because I read all the titles before we started episode one. So I know the answer to that. How dare you? I do not have your skill when it comes to selective reading. I see a page and I read the entire page. (laughs) Yeah, my selective reading is like, oh no, it's somebody I know and is connected to this thing. Okay, I am now blind. I see nothing. And then I just throw away my phone and walk away. I can't do that, sadly. So when something is visible on the page, I will have read it before my brain processes the fact that I should not have read it. I mean, that also helps you with all of your free streaming, so... Oh yeah, of course. And it also enables me to read much faster and like it's a, it's an amazing skill to have. This is the first time in my life where it's actually detrimental. <laughs> so it's very unusual to me. And this is why I have the answer to your question if you would like it. No. Okay, then I will not say anything. Thank but you. But now that we have concluded the previous yawn, it is time to drive home. Ah. Uh. What weird set of trees. And it's not even the trees as much as it is the clouds, maybe? It's fog. And here, Amazon has a nifty note for us. Because I watched this episode twice. Once to watch it and a second time to take down the Amazon notes because I didn't want to get spoiled. 
<laughs> and this time it was actually smart because, oh boy, I would have spoiled myself a few times within the episode. But also, damn, I'm blind sometimes. Did you notice that the fog is rolling backwards? It was looking weird. I don't think that I clocked that it's going backwards, but it's definitely moving unnaturally. I did not clock it at all. For me, it was fog. And Amazon says, to achieve the effect of fog going backwards, the car is actually moving backwards downhill in reality. And then the whole shot was reversed. I love that. So we are driving through the backwards rolling fog and we are driving home. I have a complaint. Did he actually name the Bentley and did he name the Bentley Lessie? He did not. This is a fuck up of Amazon Subtitles, I am 99% sure. So what did he say? Let's see. (laughs) There is a few different mistakes during this episode that I have noticed. I think that I only wrote down one that was the most obvious one. I only remember, I I only put this one into my memory because I knew you were going to bring it up. He did not, in fact, name the car Lassie. Uh, I I think Lena is crying. She's laughing really, really hard. It's so very obvious that he says, let's see it. I did not even think. (laughs) Okay. (sighs) Okay, wipe those tears away, baby. Let's go. (laughs) We drive through the backwards rolling fog. We're on our way home. And Aziraphale is talking to the car very adorably. And he's requesting music. And the car is listening to him. Honestly, honestly. We're going to have to talk about the car in the last scene still. But honestly. So... Shucks obviously shows up as the hitchhiker and obviously this entire vibe of this scene is super fucking demonic. I have a question. So three times Mm -hmm. she poses as the hitchhiker. Three, magic number. You have to say it three times, even is a direct quote from Faust when inviting Mephisto in sight. So I wonder if it had to be three times. And also, I wonder if Shax had to be invited into the Bentley because Aziraphale is currently in ownership of it. I was thinking the same thing. And unfortunately, Aziraphale is the biggest dum-dum in the universe. I'm so exasperated with Aziraphale here. What? Like In this entire episode, but especially here. Especially this scene. Like, come on, dude, you know better. Like, he goes on and on about things. And then he's like, of course, yeah, you know, you have an advantage on me. He is agreeing to the fact that his name is Zeraphel. And, like, you know, basically telling her, yes, you're right. You know who I am, but I don't know who you are. So, therefore, you have an advantage. You have me at a disadvantage. Just say she's right. Basically, he did. And then he goes, oh, I don't know who Gabriel is. It's too late for that, dude. Way too late. So I am really here for Shax because Shax is straight up terrifying in this scene. She is playing this incredibly smart, which I appreciate. I am with you with all the exasperation and annoyance when it comes to Azurafel because by now he should be better at this. Exactly. But I am here celebrating Shax because I'm happy for my girl because as we will learn in the Minnesota, she has been at this for a long time. She has been playing the long game. She never gave up. She has been working hard for this. So I am proud of my girl for getting in those achievements. So I am here for it. But most importantly in this scene, we get some background information that there has been rumors that Aziraphale and Crowley were an item. And right before she says that, she straight up says, 
you don't seem his type at all. Which is Raphael Michael Sheen. He looks so hurt by this. This is the only moment where I actually felt bad for a split second for Israfel. This is before he fucks up everything. So first time watching it, this was the half second where I felt bad for him. And then he starts fucking up everything. Oh my God. I just get so unhappy about the rest of this scene. Because you know what? That's the thing. I am here for shucks, as mm-hmm. are you. However, I hate that she's so good at it. <laughs> I hate that she's such a good, evil demon. She is such an incredible villain in this episode. And her growth was so well done over the few episodes that she got. Like, I really hoped that she would somehow end up on our side, but that's not going to happen. No, that's not going to happen. She's mm-hmm. great at being bad. Yeah, she is incredible. She is definitely so much better than any of the other demon that we have so far encountered including all the lords of hell and especially the lords of hell exactly I was literally what you just said even and especially the lords of hell the higher ups especially those they all suck I kind of feel she is great at being bad and Aziraphale is bad at being good wow that's nice right 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 Mm -hmm. I just Mm -hmm. thought of it Uh uh-huh 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 yeah take a victory lap And when you come back... done. (laughs) uh, (laughs) To wrap this up, because I am not happy with this scene. Mm -mm. To wrap this up, she leaves with the, oh, you just told me. And Aziraphale's like, how did I just tell you? You didn't, but now you did. Which is a brilliant move, but also fuck you, Aziraphale. And so my last note on this scene is, Aziraphale is really bad at all of this and he's making Crowley's life much harder than it needs to be. Because if Aziraphale only affected his own life, I wouldn't care as much. But because Crowley is there time and time again to save his ass or to save the people surrounding him that were affected by his carelessness, Crowley's life is being affected by all of this. And I'm sorry, but the last three episodes made sure... No, the last four episodes. No, f- three. This is episode four. But the last three episodes made sure that I am firmly on Team Crowley. Yeah. And don't forget that the last episode has ended with Crowley yelling at Jim about if anything happens to Azrafel. So we are coming directly from that into this scene. Yes, I know. And it hurts me. It is just so uneven. Unequal. Yeah, yes. Their relationship is incredibly one-sided. I have complained about that last episode at length. Now, let's get into the title song and opening Opening, credits. opening, opening. And I'm so glad that we didn't talk about it because I keep only watching it until I can't spot any clues anymore up to the moment that we watched. There's so much. There is so much. There is one thing that I have noticed when I watched it to make the notes. <laughs> and there is ending when they're like walking into a theater. And last time I saw it, it said the uh, resurrectionist on it. And I was like, oh, so this is supposed to be the pub. That's cute. But this time it said Nazi zombie flesh eaters. So the theater at the end of the opening credits is saying the name of the Minnesota, which I I found funny. So we need to watch every single opening in preparation for the episode six. Good. Let me take a note. <laughs> watch the opening for cross changes. Okay, wrote it down. Good. Okay. Perfect. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> all right. Just see what other changes we can spot if there are yeah, any. Yeah. No, that's. I I didn't notice that. But now we go into the Minnesota and we will not leave it until it's done. Which wow. 
It's ridiculous. We will not leave him for 40 minutes. We start this at 5 minutes 11 seconds. And we leave this at 38 minutes and 1 second. So 33 minutes of the minisode or megasode or whatever you want to call the it. The megasode is 33 minutes long. Which leaves about 9 minutes, I nine, believe. 9, 10 minutes for the actual for episode. Yes. The actual episode. Well... That is not enough. I will tell you that now. Yeah, but oh well. Let's, here we are, London, 1941. We have been here before. We oh, have yeah. seen this before. Yeah, I mean, it was obvious with the Nazis in the title that this was going to be a second world orbit because we're going through the ages. So yes, even today we still have Nazis, but if we do the flashbacks, obviously World War II. Ta-da. And we are in the middle of the Blitz. Are we using the same footage that we had in episode one or did they redo it? No. This is the season one footage that is simply intercut with new footage under the rubble. So this is all taken from season one, which is nicely done, I feel. Also, I love that moment. I took the time and I went back into season one, episode three, which is where this happens. Mm -hmm. And I checked my notes just to make sure that I was right. And I am right because that is the scene at the end of this when he has the bag of books and Aziraphale looks at Crowley. This is the moment Aziraphale starts falling in love with Crowley. Well, this is also the first time he tells him that they're friends a little bit later in the bookshop. So, you know, yes. This is the turning point for Aziraphale. Crowley already was in love with him before. But this is the moment for Aziraphale. Yeah, because he's so caring and kind. No matter how exasperated I am by Aziraphale's behavior throughout the last episodes and especially in this episode, I am still here for our ineffable husbands. I still want this to happen and to be. I just want Crowley to be happy too. You know, I just don't want him to worry so much all the time. And I also want him not to be the only one to put in the work because a relationship can only work if both people contribute. And at this moment, their relationship is only carried by one of them. But this moment from season one, when Aziraphale has the book bag and he looks after Crowley, who has started to saunter off, that is the old Aziraphale. Because like you said, we are getting a pretty different Aziraphale in season two than what we got in season one and also what we got in the book. So this is a nice glimpse in the past and I want that Aziraphale. Even if it's a very slow moving Aziraphale, because you go too fast for me, but it was a kinder and more caring Aziraphale for his surroundings and especially for Crowley. So I want that back. You can't blame Crowley for falling for him because especially then when we have the bookshop scene a little bit later, we'll get to talk about that. But now let's jump to hell for a little second. We, we need to, of course, get out of the way. The Nazis aren't dead. The three Nazis from season one, episode three are under the rubble and they start moving. Ooh, whatever could have happened to make them move again. And this is why we need to go into hell and see what is happening. I mean, I saw in one of the scenes that he closes his eyes. So it was all very dark. So I couldn't really distinguish what exactly was happening there. So I was a little pissy. But like, is he not dead? Are they already back in their bodies or what's so, going on? So basically you see tiny, tiny movements on them, especially their faces. They are already back. They are in the process of coming back because timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly. Because time and hell moves different than it does on Earth. So this is the moment they're already coming back, but it takes a moment. 
At least that is how I read it. I felt like they were just dying. No. Okay. But I mean, the, again, maybe, but I, no. <laughs> as I said, I kind of hated the fact that this scene was so dark because I couldn't see shit. We are in hell. And because I watched this before I read through all the Amazon notes, I took note of all the amazing posters on the walls because we have the Idle Hands poster again. We have a We Hate You poster. We have so many amazing posters. But later on, there is an Amazon trivia note. So I shall wait until that comes up because there we have the list. So eh, pay attention. There's a lot of posters. <laughs> well, the voice that's coming out of the uh, speakers, it reminds me of David Tennant voice no you should recognize this i figured i it just feels very familiar you should recognize this because this happened already in season one okay i have no memory of that this is a terry pratchett impression by paul oh, k it's the thing where we had the radio and thing yeah okay i'm lost i didn't recognize <laughs> it it sounded like David Tennant to me. Nope. This is a Terry Pratchett impression. And we've heard this before in season one, which Amazon kindly pointed out. Mm. But it's fun to have at least some Terry Pratchett bit also in season two. Yeah. I mean, yes. We get to see Shucks in her original job. She clearly is very driven. She's very good at it. And she decides to help out Furfur. And I do not trust this. I don't think that she is doing it out of the goodness of her heart. I think she's doing it so he can fail and she can promote herself. I think she sets it up in a way that no matter if he is successful or not, she will benefit from the situation. Which is why she is so great at what she does. Because she ensures that she will win either way. Yeah, regardless of the outcome. Speaking of Furfur, the name Furfur comes from the Latin word Furcifer, which is scoundrel. It is also Latin for forked. So Furci, like Furzi. Haha, <laughs> funny, funny. Sounds like the German word for fart. Means <laughs> forked, which also explains why Furfur has this very long forked tongue. Interesting. Yeah, so it's a double meaning and a double meaning with a double tongue. <laughs> to wrap up our first moment in hell, I kind of have to state it. It is not surprising that hell is really, really busy during World War II. Yeah, actually, that, that's a very good point that I didn't think of. I mean, I feel like hell is busy just for the sake of being busy. You know, it reminds me of the hell in Supernatural when you just do... No, no, no. Furfur states that he just processed 53 men named Otto, which is a standard German name. In that time. So hell is full of Germans because this is World War II. It's called Nazis go to hell. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's not surprising. Yeah. So, <laughs> Yeah. It's yeah. nice to get a reconfirmation that they go to hell. Because when you look at today's politics, you might get a different idea. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to go into politics. Not in the middle of the episode. Let's see how long we record and then see if we go off tangents. <laughs> We go upstairs again. We go into London and I don't have much to say for this scene. I wonder if Crowley keeps saying shut up, shut up because he is trying to get Azrafel not to say those things because last time Azrafel ran his mouth, he ended up in hell. So would this mean that they haven't seen each other since, what what year was it, 1728, 1724? Maybe, could be, but I am of the absolute certainty that Aziraphale needs to fucking shut up 
saying Crowley is nice and doing the right thing because this has consequences. So this is bad and he did not learn anything. I feel like he uh, is trying to convince Crowley that he is good by telling him, oh, look how kind you are, look how good you are, whatever. And he doesn't understand that Crowley doesn't need to hear it. He doesn't need to be told. There is a danger in it. And also, why is it necessary to state it when Crowley's actions speak for themselves? Why does Aziraphale have this obsessive need to verbalize that Crowley did a good thing? He has to be smart enough to realize that doing the right thing as a demon is a dangerous thing. This is a quote from season one. Just as it is a dangerous thing for an angel to do the wrong thing, it is a dangerous thing for a demon to do the right thing, to be up for good. And so he knows that and he willingly endangers Crowley. And this is the beginning for me in this Minnesota where I get annoyed. Yeah. He's reckless. He doesn't think things through. He doesn't seem to care about the implications and that is what is upsetting. But we need to stop harping on about Aziraphale because we're starting to get repetitive and I said it as someone who always comes back to her complaints time and time again. But also this scene has so many amazing tiny tidbits and I hope we can manage to keep them in the actual episode because we're driving through the burning streets because we have a delivery to make and when we make that delivery we have the ladies of Camelot which already has a lot of interesting background information but most importantly when we enter the theater the camera gives us just just a tiny view into the alley next to the theater did you see that no And there is a table tennis table and a group of nuns and they're playing table tennis. Like a ping pong? Yes, there's a ping pong table and they're playing table tennis in nun outfits. And do you remember Good Omens? The chattering order of St. Beryl is under a vow to emulate St. Beryl at all times except on Tuesday afternoons for half an hour when the nuns are permitted to shut up and if they wish to play table tennis. So this is... This is a Tuesday Tuesday. afternoon. Oh my god. I love this. It's a tiny little fucking tidbit that makes chest. You have the you have the Mwah. ladies of Camelot in their outfits in the front smoking and they go in through the door and just on the right side of your screen you see into the alleyway and that is where the nuns are playing table tennis. Oh my god. And this made me ridiculously happy. I'm so so sorry but I a I was incredibly proud of myself that I spotted it because obviously it is part of the Amazon trivia but this is so cool it's so good I love it <laughs> and of course we make the delivery that is not a great one Aziraphale gets himself invited to perform on the big stage now my first thought was thinking back to Edinburgh And did Azrafel actually break the bottles in order to, you know, help people be good? But luckily, no, this is not the case. This is not the same situation. You're skipping ahead. The broken drinks is after the next hell scene. Oh, okay. Sorry. I don't have a lot of lot of notes here, so... No worries, no worries. So... They go inside to, as Crowley puts it, spread the old demon drink, which, I mean, I, 
for some reason, this episode had so many quotable lines for me <laughs> that seriously, like 30% of my notes are quotes, which is very rare for me. But I was so fucking feeling this episode. And this concludes this scene and we can go into hell. And we have the three Nazis coming up to uh, Furfur, Furfur. 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 who is... I just love his name. He's so cute. Uh, I find he is incredibly gross for some reason. He is gross, but his name is cute. Furfur. 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 Like purring. Furfur. Uh, no. Um, no. And <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> weirdly enough, just after we heard from Shucks that if Furfur has any details of any demons doing good, he can come up to her. We get these three Nazis talking about Crowley and Mr. Fell. Yeah, it's very well done, in my opinion, with them being so upset about what happened and naturally talking about the people they blame unknowing that they're complaining about a demon in a church. And this is a reason why they should change their names more often. Yes, absolutely. But I loved how this was done. Of course, Furfur takes great interest. This is a very short scene. He takes out the pen. We get a close-up, prolonged moment with the... Double tipped forked tongue, which (laughs) not my kink. And once again, I need to say, once again, Crowley will get into trouble for helping Aziraphale, just like last episode. Yep, just like in season one. Yeah, just like since the beginning of time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Now we briefly go to West End to insert Aziraphale into his lifelong dream to perform as a magician on the big stage. (sighs) Which is something that he is helping his friend with, but also I just hate magic. Let's just say it now. The problem is that we know from season one that he sucks at magic. And so this is a cringe fest waiting to happen and I do not do well with cringe. The upside of this, if you look at it, is that Zerafel is convinced that he can do magic yet at this point. And we have seen the end of it where this has already happened. So we know that he sucks and we know Crowley knows he sucks. But at this point, Crowley believes in him still because he hasn't seen him perform, which is Go, yeah, no, I, I I, just don't love magic in general. Yeah, I mean, there's, let's just put it like that. But much more enjoyable is the fact that Crowley approaches Mrs. H. Because Mrs. H refers to Mrs. Henderson, who's played by Sheehan Phillips. And Mrs. H was Laura Henderson, the true life founder of the Windmill Theatre. And Vivian Van Damme, whom Henderson left the theatre to, after she died, described her as a great strain on one's nerves, patience and tact. I love that. I wish somebody would describe me like that. I'm pretty sure I have, but... (laughs) Not in those words. Not in those exact words, but I shall... I shall do so. (laughs) I demand for you to refer to me as those words all the time now. Well, I don't have tact, so you're only a strain on my nerves and patience. I love you. Well, well. (laughs) Well. Luckily, this goes both ways. Oh, I know. I'm fully aware of that. You know what else goes both ways? Our pronunciation issues. Because the reason why I didn't pick prestidigitation? 
Yes, for my British word of the episode is because it gets explained here because prestidigitation, prestidigitation. is... Prestidigitation. I did better. It's a fancy word for magic tricks. The definition is conjuring tricks performed as an entertainer, which is why I picked conjurer. <laughs> Before we leave the theater where Mrs. H just received the broken whiskey and the Xerophil managed to pre-digitation something. Press the digitation, yeah, that's what we got over. Yes, his uh, place as a magician. I have two more things to say before we can move on. The first one is, instead of fulfilling his own egotistical want, he could have miracled the bottles whole and full. And that would actually have been a kindness towards Crowley. And secondly, did you notice the piano player misplaying a note right when Mrs. H says, I'm fucked? Yes, it's so funny. That was so well done. I didn't realize what was the word supposed to be when I watched it the first time. But when I watched the second time, I was like, oh, of course it's fucked. Yeah. So that was beautiful. We go down to hell. So Let's I know. Down. Let's get down. What? Oh, it's a great song, by the way. It's a cha-cha. So it's been a while since I heard that one. Maybe I'll add it to my... I'm sorry. Okay. I know you know some German. Did you catch the German bits in this scene? Uh, well, try me. I see if I understand because I don't think I clocked any German until the last scene of the Minnesota. We have two moments where there's German And one of them is in the demonstration video of what will happen to them if they don't sign if they don't sign the papers. And the tiny Nazi fly says, Hilf mir. Oh, help me. Obviously. Yes. It's in my brain it's the same thing. And the other thing is when Furfur talks about it, he says, Otherwise it's Spinne time. And Spinne is spider. Ah okay. I have to say I was so grateful that this is done as an animation because this actually means that this is bearable for me to watch. I had to think of you, so... It was absurd enough and unrealistic enough depiction that I could actually watch this. So I'm very grateful to the creators of the show. Thank you very much. Speaking of the creators of the show who created this scene, here's a comment from Peter Anderson who designed the spiderweb and Nazi fly sequence. The studio had a blast attempting to create an incredible incredibly grotesque scene for this project. Our goal was to brainstorm various food items that could convincingly resemble regurgitated guts when splattered. To achieve this effect, we purchased spaghetti, various seltzer and anchovies and proceeded to film them as they were dropped from a considerable height. The primary challenge we faced during this process was striking a balance between creating a gory, messy scene and ensuring that the visuals remained clear and coherent. We wanted the audience to grasp the concept that being transformed into a zombie on Earth would be preferable to being eternally regurgitated by the spider. To enhance the overall visual impact, we combined 2D and 3D animation techniques. While the majority of the sequence was designed and animated in 2D, the spider's pulsating anus was meticulously crafted using 3D modeling to achieve a heightened level of realism and intensity. Yeah, I think that the pulsating anus was... <laughs> um, a, a step towards this is not a spider, really. 
So again, I appreciate it. Thank you. Pulsating anus would be a interesting drug name. Now I'm thinking about it. Yeah, and if we named our episode, this would be a great episode name. Yeah. I feel like at some point we should name our episode something. When we start some other project, maybe. Maybe. We'll see. The Nazis are watching this instructional video and they ask a very important question. How long will we have to do this for? And fro fro fur fur fro fro. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> brain keeps going to fro fro. Mm-hmm. Fur fur goes into his little notebook to check. Oh, let me check. And he takes forever to check and then goes, oh, yeah, eternity. <laughs> like... Didn't you know? As if he didn't know. (laughs) Absolutely did know. Yeah. Because they have the option either 24-hour zombies or eternal damnation as Nazi spider food supply to... Yeah. Wow. I mean, I probably would also go with the zombies. In this moment, I was actually wondering if there were gonna be classic zombies, as in the brains, or if there were gonna be mission-oriented, as in the original Romero approach for zombies. So, obviously, very soon we learned that, but to me it was like, huh, both options, I do wonder. And in my right, instantly, two potential storylines started and neither happened. So, um, (laughs) yeah. My brain is sometimes fun. Somewhere in between. Yeah, this is also one of the scenes where you have the heaven looks down on you because you are pathetic signs in the background, which, such a great sign i kind of would love some of those posters yeah you know if any of you out there is a graphic designer or something feel free to make us that (laughs) thank you thank you obviously it is not a necessity well it's a necessity you don't have to be a graphic designer in order to do shit like that but i don't know how to do it but if i tend to i'm gonna use ms paint and it's gonna look incredibly bad And I'm going to be proud of it, but it's going to be bad. Yeah, I was never good when it came to creative stuff on that level. My creative level is making up words. It is time to leave hell and to go upstairs to London. And because up to this moment, I always switched hell, London, hell, London. This scene got kind of long because I didn't realize that we were going to stay up there. So I keep all of it together until we go to the theater. So you will need to be the guiding light. Okay, well, since I'm going to be the guiding light, let's get the first thing out first. This is a moment for yet another Amazon subtitle mishap. Oh, okay. Because we go into this scene and one of the first things we see slash hear is this guy sitting in the wreckage singing a song. We get the whole thing and the kids are trying to take the medallion and the zombies raise up. And according to the subtitles, she says, at least he has oxygen. Yes. Do you know what she actually says? I suppose that's dinner. (laughs) So she says, I suppose that's dinner. And the subtitles go, at least he has oxygen. And I was like... My brain... What? Is incapable of hearing words that are not written. (laughs) So I 
heard her say at least he has oxygen. See, I watched it for the first time and I read the subtitle and I was like, I don't think I heard that. Yeah, I, it but... doesn't make sense. Like, I didn't understand why she would say that, but I didn't question it. Even though last episode we talked about the problem with the subtitles. Mm. Ah! The thing was, I'm pretty sure that because there was a scene change there, I was finishing my notes, my last note on the previous scene and typing out the name of this scene. So I wasn't looking at the screen when she said it. So that's how my brain was like, okay. And then I look up and I saw the sentence. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. That's not what I just heard. I write my notes without looking at them. And if I have to write something more complicated, I pause and then write. Difference in note taking. Okay. Curious, curious, curious. Speaking of dinner. Here's dinner. <laughs> speaking of dinner, it was a very classic move to have them as hungry zombies. It made mm -hmm. sense. I'm gonna say it now so I don't have to complain about another thing. The zombies did not work for me. This is a type of British humor and I'm pretty sure that it's like with the League of Gentlemen that we talked about in Effects and Funds and everything. This is not my kind of humor. It's very rare that it works for me. And it did not work for me. It made sense. I understood it from a creative standpoint and blah, 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 blah. Nope. I enjoyed it. I'm happy for you. I wish I could have enjoyed it more. It was okay. But because the Minnesota is a Megasode, I was not happy with useless parts in the Megasode because we did not get any actual episode. And this is one of the bits that I blame for it, you know? Ah. And this is why it didn't really work for me, I think. I personally enjoy this type of humor and therefore my opinion on this was a little different. But also, again, I have to go out there and say thank you for not making it extremely gory and gross because it makes it watchable for me. And it is still very smartly done. The shadow of the bloodstream or bits when they devour the things. Yeah, it's very, very well done. So I am a huge fan of gore. So I, on one level, would have been like, yeah, gore, gore, gore. But I really appreciate the artistry that they employ here. Like, that part worked for me. Okay, great. We found something good. Oh, yeah. Question. Why yes. are the Germans talking English amongst themselves? I always think about these things when I watch things. So there is no answer. It doesn't make I'm sense, right? I'm not 100% sure. I feel like we might have some answer in the episode 3 in season 1. No, they use more German in season 1 episode 3 than they do in this one. Okay. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I feel like maybe... You know what? The question is, why does everybody speak English? Why do they speak English in hell? Why do they speak English in heaven? Because that is the law of how you understand something that potentially is a universal language. Well, maybe in that case, maybe what if they are speaking German? And because they are in England, it is translating into English so they can perform their task. Eh, no, not happy. I mean, it's not great, no. No, okay, but at least you agree with me that they should be speaking German. That's all I really wanted. You to agree with me. Then, of course, we get one of them start singing with the English accent. And it's extremely funny to me, especially when he says, oh, no, I'm sorry, he's repeating on me. <sighs> I love this kind of a joke. It makes me very happy. It but... was a pun and... Pretty sure most of our listeners know by this point how I feel about <laughs> puns. Unless you made one. 
only to reciprocate your torture inflicted upon me. After they have eaten, it is time to actually start their mission. And we revisit a location. Because we go mm -hmm. into the dirty donkey. Dirty donkey. So that made me actually happy. I saw really that last happy. time as well. Yeah. Yes. So we know that this pub has been there for dozens of years at the very least. And it makes sense because this is a type of an English pub that would be around for generations. Also, I do wonder if Xerophil keeps this little corner shaped the way it is. Because he does keep Maggie in that shop, even though she can't afford it. Because Xerophil is not a great fan of change. So I would actually not be surprised if he was not entirely innocent when it comes to how this part around the bookshop is set up, you know? See, considering how high and mighty he keeps behaving, he is actually so selfish and he has actually so many human... Influences. Maybe influences, but he actually, if you look at the Ten Commandments and stuff like that, he sins quite a lot. Yes. He also always has too much money. Yeah, well, that's completely another thing. Now, anyway, we said that we were not going to complain about Azrafel as much. Well, now we can start crying. We go into the bookshop and we have something that I referred to earlier today. Azrafel says for the first time, that's what friends are for. And my so he... heart. I was not ready for that. Mm -mm. Bless his little heart. <sighs> yeah. No... Um, he starts performing magic. A coin trick. Coin trick for Crowley. Because he got a book and he opens it and he reads what was written in it. And it is signed by the Hoff. Did you notice that? Yes. I don't know what it means though. The Hoff is short for Professor Hoffman, who is an actual magician. But obviously in our conversation, the Hoff is usually David Hasselhoff. And even Amazon points out that the Hoff is a nickname for both of those people. <laughs> Because obviously they are the same person. Obviously. But it was very entertaining to me because I think two episodes ago we actually had a short tangent about David Hasselhoff, the Hoff. Because why not? And here we go again with the Hoff. So that brought me unrelated joy. I'm sorry. <laughs> nice. And he gets so excited. Zerifel gets so excited about performing and he gets so excited to show off his conjuring for Crowley. And he is so adorable in this moment. Crowley is just sitting there watching him. And no wonder Crowley is falling in love with Azrafel or has been in love with Azrafel because he can be so charming and cute. Why does he have to also be so cruel and terrible sometimes? Well, sometimes you have to be cruel to be kind. Apparently not when you're Azrafel because apparently you can't be kind to you, the love of your life, apparently. And also Ugh. why all of this is happening, we intercut with the zombies, but I want to focus on what is happening in the bookshop because Crowley is watching and he is mimicking an American accent, I think it's supposed to be. No, I don't think so. I but think what that's kind like of an... accent is that? Well, the subtitles say old man English. Well, but it's the subtitles, so... It is the subtitles and it does sound like a specific area in England that I don't know what is. Well, if you know, dear listener, please let us know because damn. But 
the way he says it and what he says, he is so supportive because the way he points out with the, oh, this is like a trick for close quarters. You need something bigger because you're going to be on the West End. And when Aziraphale's like holding back with, oh, no, we can't buy a trick because it's for like professional conjurers. And it's like, you are a professional because you will be on stage. He is so supportive. And also, this is where the flirting starts. When he says, my Nefertiti fooling fellow. This is fucking flirting. That is flirting. Well, I can't tell flirting from a regular conversation myself. So I will rely on you there. Come on, you have to agree. My Nefertiti fooling fellow. Come on. That is flirting. Sure. Sure, it's flirting. (sighs) Okay. So this is what's happening in the bookshop or what we see happen in the bookshop. And I actually did not clock this the first time I watched the episode. The zombies are watching through the window of the pub. And then the Sherlock zombie is like, oh, give me the thingy. Sherlock zombie. You know what I mean? The one who is also on Sherlock. So Sherlock zombie goes, give me the the looking thingy. I am great at reading lips. And then he goes, banana, gorilla, shoelace. And I was like, okay, so he can't actually read lips. Same. I was like, what the fuck is wrong with him? And then at the end of the episode, of course, we have to, I said the magic words and then it is those words. I didn't clock that the first time I watched it. And then I watched it the second time and he goes, banana. I was like, oh my God. So it took me that long to realize that he was actually doing a great job. I want to point out all the German until this moment had been heavily accent, but the way they say Dummkopf was actually really good German. Nice. Dummkopf means something bad, right? Stupid head, literally. Like, idiot. Literally, stupid head. Dummkopf. Because she does not believe him that this is what Zerathal says. Neither did we. Exactly. We were shown (laughs) wrong. We were proven wrong. Yes. But Crowley needs Zerafel to come up with something dramatic. And he decides to bring him to the magic slash joke slash apprentice slash whatever shop. I called it a joke shop because I just refuse to call it a magic shop. I honestly find practical magic incredibly stressful to watch and this the is reason cringe. yeah the reason for that is that regardless of how good the people are there is always and this is i know this is why some people find it thrilling but regardless of that you know skill that the person has there's always a chance that things will go wrong and to me that is too stressful I much more enjoy like a mental brain power thingy like what uh, Darren Brown does Mm -hmm. where he uh, tricks your brain into seeing things and thinking things rather than practical effects like this, like practical magic. That is so stressful for me. I don't mind the props for the props. I mind the I don't actually know what I mean, what I'm doing moments with props because this is pure cringe. This scene for the most part is a cringe fest and I hate it. Both when Aziraphale interacts with the props and when the oldest zombie interacts with the items. Both. So it's not an Aziraphale issue that I have. It's just a don't know how to handle props. I didn't mind this specific scene. I just mind the logic. I wonder. I don't know. I didn't look it up. But uh, the seller in the shop, is he somebody who does magic? Maybe is he some sort of a magician? Did he hire somebody? 
I did not check that up, but I was right when on my first watch through, I assumed that the Chinese fella that gets referenced was an actual reference because that is a magician named William Ellsworth Robinson, also known as Chung Ling Su. He was an American magician who disguised himself as half Cantonese and changed his whole identity. His most famous illusion was called Condemned to Death by the Boyers. Guns were fired at him and he appeared to catch the bullets from air in front of him and drop them on a plate. In London in 1918, he performed his illusion as usual, but the gunpowder accidentally exploded and sent a bullet into the magician's lung. It was only after his death that the public found out about his true identity. See, and this is exactly proving my fucking point about practical yes. magic. I also think that this magician is referenced in The Prestige. Mm. In general, all of this magic really made me think of The Prestige, which is a great movie and I highly recommend you watch it and you don't know anything about it before you watch it. Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman. And I heard of Andy this. Circus and fuck what's his name Michael Caine and David Bowie and listen listen yeah. oh wait David Bowie I think I've seen I very much selective memory so uh, you know what add it to the watch list uh, of things that we can watch together now Zerafel obviously decides to do the bullet catch and to Crowley's surprise he claims that he already has a gun license which tells me something that we will have confirmed by the end of the episode that he in fact does not have a gun license Crowley. and he has never fired a gun and he never says he did yeah in that point but also it makes me believe that he also wouldn't have driving license because why would he need a driver's license while we already know that Zerafel does have a driving license and it just makes sense to me that Zerafel is going to gather all of these skills no he gathers all the permits because you don't drive without a permit you don't own a gun without a permit it is not proper it is not done you follow the law you are good Mm -hmm. so uh, yeah I now don't believe that Crowley has a driver's license. I would not be surprised, but also I think the reason why he doesn't have a gun license is because I honestly believe that Crowley is a pacifist. Yeah, I agree. Let's go back into the shop. This scene, after they have decided, well, after Zerofel has decided that the bullet catch is going to be his showstopper, then we have a lot of painful moments because our... Dear shopkeeper points out that you need someone that you fully trust. Mm-hmm. And he just automatically assumes that Kroll is going to do it. Yeah, but he also does not even hesitate to say, oh, I know just the person. Yeah, he doesn't even ask first. Yeah, but this is the thing. I don't think Aziraphale is maliciously callous towards Crowley. No. I do think that he trusts him in this way, but it's still really, really painful. It is. And especially when he goes like, oh, of course, you're a demon, so you must have fired a lot of guns. There is a lot of assumptions coming from Azrafel towards Crowley. And you'd think that after the millennia that they've spent together, he knows him better than that. There's a lot of implied judgment as well, which is at odds with the someone you can really trust. Because how can you trust someone that you would judge so harshly on so many other levels and that you are so desperately trying to change or to admit that they're different than they are? So... Mm -hmm. It's a very complicated situation and I do wonder how aware of these 
opposing sides Aziraphale is and Crowley is. And if that is maybe one of the reasons why Aziraphale seems so careless, because he is doing the very best he can to pretend that none of these exist. Because denial is a river in Africa and there is a reason why we are usually knee deep, hip deep or chin deep in it. I don't know. I definitely don't think that he is doing this maliciously, any of this, but it's just painful to watch some of these things. And this is what I was, this is what I meant when I was talking about Zraphel being all high and mighty. He is so judgmental towards things that towards demons and by extension towards Crowley because he always treats him as a demon and then when Crowley over and over and over again proves to him that this is not all he is that he is more than that goes around saying oh you are so kind and being so patronizing and surprised by the fact that Crowley does a nice and kind thing for him. Obviously he will. And he has done it times and times again before, which has proven that he is not this stereotypical demon. Why do you keep assuming that he is? Because for eternity before that, Aziraphale has been indoctrinated by the fact that demons are evil and act a certain way. And that once you have fallen, you are bad. Yes. I don't think that he is aware how many times Crowley saved his butt. Because, for example, the whole Edinburgh business was not strictly speaking Crowley saving Aziraphale's butt, but Crowley cleaning up the mess Aziraphale made. But Aziraphale was not even aware he is making a mess. So I would say Aziraphale is only, if we're lucky, half of the time aware that Crowley did something good or nice. Usually mm. only when it is directly for him, like with the books. Mm. So that is one thing. And the other is the heavenly indoctrination and the blind belief in the ineffable plan and in doing things the way they are done and there is no change ever is something that came a lot more natural to Aziraphale than it ever came to Crowley. Crowley from the very beginning of time was questioning mm -hmm. and Aziraphale wasn't. And only with the help of Crowley did he manage to make that step and so from within himself he has a much harder time to accept or to realize that not all demons are the same basically not all demons um <laughs> i know and when we post this episode it's gonna have a new hashtag hashtag not all demons yes Thank you very much. and so this is why i understand it i'm still exasperated by it just as you but it makes sense yeah it's not a good enough excuse for me at this point, it may have been a good enough excuse for me 500 years ago, but no longer. Well, it is a good enough excuse for me, but also I have all the empathy in the world for poor, poor Crowley. But we will talk about that in a moment because there is something else coming up, but we shall see. Huh. I mean, in Lucifer, I was the Dan apologist and now I'm the Azuraphel apologist. So <laughs> there you go. So Crowley agrees to help Azuraphel with this trick. And they shake hands and obviously the zombies are like, oh, rub the ring, rub the ring. And he rubs the wrong ring, obviously. That was so gonna happen ever since I saw the exactly the same ring, except it was a different color on the rack. And I still found it funny because, again, I find this funny. They salvage the situation well enough by talking to the shopkeeper <laughs> after our ineffable husbands leave 
the shop and gets the necessary information. Do you think they asked him or did they just know after eating his brain? Well, they saw the inevitable husbands take the gun with them and they saw what was missing from the glass case. Well, also one of the zombies that was inside was looking over their shoulder when they had the manual open. So So they don't know because they know. They know because they saw and heard and because they find one of the papers. So yeah, that's not a brain thing. It's just a... They don't suck completely at their job. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good. I mean, bad, bad. But again, we have this beautiful depiction of them eating the shop owner because they knock over the puppet and the puppet pops its head open and brains and blood come out. Yeah, fake brain and blood. So good. Incredible way to not make it gory, but very understandable to what is happening in the background. We leave the magic shop and we go to the theater. We go to the windmill. And this is where I finally complained. This is not a Minnesota. This is the bigger part of the episode. It's a Megasote. 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 Before we get into all of this, there is one thing I need to point out because mysteriosity is one of the words that is being used to describe Aziraphale before he comes on stage. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a perfect word for the British word of the episode. No, because it's not British. It's a made up word. It is in the Urban Dictionary and it's the name of a Pokemon. I love that. You should have taken it and just say, okay, so this is my favorite word of the entire episode and it's the name of a Pokemon. Goodbye. All right. So in the theater, they, after Israfel is announced, he walks on stage and he is nervous. He is so nervous. It's cute that he has a sign ready for the amazing Mr. Fell. A beautiful, cute sign. So once again, the prop department, chef's fucking kiss every little detail. He's not just nervous, he also has zero stage presence. And I applaud Michael Sheen for his acting because Michael Sheen is an amazing actor with an amazing stage presence. Very commanding. And to be able to pretend like you have not just no stage presence, but basically negative stage presence is Uh, mind-boggling to me. It's... Very, very good. And then uh, he asks the audience after he tries to perform. Oh, no, yet actually doesn't. So and then he asks the audience who has experience handling a gun. And basically everybody raises their hands. Because we're in the middle of a war. It's such a stupid question. They all wearing uniforms as well. But curious enough, <laughs> Crowley does not raise his hand again. Leads me to believe that he, in fact, does not have experience with guns as well he, as he doesn't have a license. So, again, this will get confirmed in a second, but yeah, maybe let him answer next time you ask him a question, Israfel, please. Thank you very much. Yeah, stop assuming, because when you assume, you make an ass out of you and me. Out of both of us. Yeah, no, because assume, the way it's spelled. I know. Okay, sorry. I know this was a this was a shit's creek reference. After asking this incredibly stupid question in a room full of soldiers who has experience handling a gun and Crowley not raising his hand, we have of course our zombies in the back and mm-hmm. they one of them raises their hand. Yes. And they finally summon Furfur. And Frofro. For some reason it was hilarious to me that he shows up facing the wrong way. <laughs> yes. 
It's a tiny thing, but it literally had me oh, laughing. Yes. So sometimes I'm a weird person and some things don't work for me and some things work way too much for me. So yeah, Fofo is there with his camera and we are now waiting for what might happen. And in preparation for that, he takes out his miracle blocker card, which what an incredible item. Like this is a fucking overpowered item. Like, yes. Wow. Yeah. Damn. It's like, how, how, what? How did he get one of those? Why does he have them? What do you have to do to get them? I have so many questions. Who thought of this? I am, like, this tiny piece of card is a game changer for me. And I'm so obsessed with it. I shouldn't be, but I am absolutely obsessed with it. This is one of the tidbits. But it's also one of those things where you have a specific amount of uses on it because you have to click her through the slots. And when you run out of slots, it's no longer useless. You have the power is the power is somewhat lim- limited. Yes, but 10 times miracle blocker for half yeah. an hour. It's a lot. Imagine if someone had used that for the raising of Lazarus. Like, <sighs> nah, not today, bitch. <laughs> Maybe they have. We just haven't heard of it because nobody wrote about it. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, yes. someone sent me a fan fiction where the miracle blocker <laughs> is part of the story because I'm here for it. Like, seriously. Okay, sorry. I am completely obsessed with that. So we blocked the miracles and I was like, oh no, oh no, this is really bad. However, I am very glad that the first thing Furfur does is that he uses the block card blocker, the miracle blocker. So that luckily gets Zrafel to realize that his miracles aren't working and the same with Crowley. This yeah. way we have the opportunity or the husbands have the opportunity to realize that the miracles aren't working, which saves their lives basically because I'm 100% convinced that Crowley would have just walked on and tried to miracle the bullets into the side and not really care about where he's shooting if he didn't realize that the... So, you know, luckily we had this moment of them realizing this. Question. Yes, answer. Why does Aziraphel and why does Crowley soldier on with the trick, even though they realize that they can't miracle their way out of this and Crowley knows he is not a good shot? Why does he take this risk? Well, because first of all, he doesn't know he's not a good shot because he's never fired a gun before. Same thing. But maybe he's just secretly talented. Why would Crowley risk Aziraphale? Because like Furfur points out, they might not even be able to put him back together. Why would Crowley take this ginormous risk of potentially losing Aziraphale just for entertainment. I think it's because Aziraphale. Aziraphale has him come on stage. He tells him his miracles aren't working, which is fair enough. They exchange this information. Thank you, communication, this time. Yeah, I know what you're referencing. (laughs) But... The way he looks at Crowley with absolute trust, with expectation, he wants him to continue on. And Crowley, he's head over heels. He wants to do this. Because Aziraphale expects this of him, he continues with it. Yes, he wants nothing more than to make Aziraphale happy. Kids, this is not healthy behavior. Do not emulate this. Don't put unreasonable expectations on your friends and future lovers. Yeah, but I think that this is the reason why he continues on. Yeah, I know. It's a good point. And there is one moment specifically when the camera goes 
into a close-up on Michael Sheen's face, or Azrafel, where he looks at him with so much trust, there is no other way to put it, that it melts my heart. Because it feels like that is a moment where he is telling him, I believe in you, I 100% trust you, I love you, you are the only person in front of me, and you can do whatever you set your mind to. This is what Zrafal's look is telling Crowley, and Crowley is like sweating because he doesn't believe any of those things. I did him. not see that in Zrafal's face. Uh, it's like... I only saw the desperation in a Crowley's smile when he comes on stage. It's a very not Crowley smile. But acting-wise, it was amazing. And then, of course, you have like the, the focusing and the hesitation and everything. Mrs. H from the sideline, shoot, go on with it! Which is like, shut up! I mean, when we have the detail of Crowley's finger shaking. The trembling finger and everything. I found it hilarious. The moment he takes the shot, the bullet goes into the wall right next to Mrs. H's head. <laughs> yeah. So was it was like, good. woman, maybe maybe don't like, uh, heckle them. To be fair, them. she... Heckle, yeah. Heckle. Maybe don't heckle them, woman. Otherwise, Listen. the next bullet hits you. <laughs> Based on where the bullet ended up, she was probably standing directly behind Azrafel, so Azrafel was between her and the gun anyway, so I think she would have been fine. Why would you position yourself in such a dangerous location? No, it's perfectly safe, because the bullet will stop in his body, or it will go next to him. Yeah, because bullets never go through a body. Mm-hmm. Listen, this is the 40s. We do not have the technology yet to know that this can happen. Don't stand in front of a gun even if there's some person standing in front of you. Seriously. Well, do not stand in front of a gun, period. Do not aim a gun regardless if it is loaded or not loaded or if the safety is on or not. Do not do that ever. Yeah. Because you will never know there has been enough tragedies in situations where the gun should not have been loaded. And several movie sets. It's not that long since the last time this happened. Do not do it. That was not the only case. Like Absolutely there have been not. many cases. So yeah. yeah. This is no, why but within this universe, is... still, I say, Mrs. H, don't stand there. The trick is a success and everyone is completely baffled. But throughout all of this process, a picture was taken. And the picture was taken while Crowley is smiling a very uncrowley smile when Azurafel is handing him the gun. And they are looking into the audience. I don't think it's as incriminating as it could have been if Frofro for Furfer would have gotten the handshake in the shop. That would have been the end of them immediately. But it's still incriminating enough because he has the booklet with it. Yes, because he has the because he has additional information. But the photo by itself is not incriminating. But also the additional information without the photo is useless. So he exactly. needs both. Yeah. So we go off stage, we go into the dressing room and we have one of the gayest Xerophil moments that we've had so far. Which parts? The way he plays with the oh boa. Oh my god. Oh. Yes, this is incredible. This is actually literally my first note on this scene. I <laughs> love that so fucking much so good i want to cosplay wearing that suit and, a and boa. that boa yeah and then be that person because that gave me joy this happiness was infectious yes this is why crawley gets drawn to him over and over and over again even though he's treated like shit and this is why we love a zero fell yes so so are we 
we have this moment and obviously it's not a very long happy moment because we get interrupted by Furfur. And I kind of felt bad for Furfur with Crowley not remembering him at all. What I find way more interesting is the fact that there was a battle. Oh yeah, because this is the first time that we have the confirmation of there being actual battle and Crowley being a part of it. Crowley being a soldier and that of course makes me wonder, was Aziraphil on the battlefield as well? All reason points to yes. Did he see him there? Did Crowley see Aziraphil on the battlefield? I don't know. So I'm, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna go with no. I'm wondering. I'm wondering. Just because it My would brain be is very... doing things. <laughs> but uh, Furfur is hurt by this situation regardless of it being intentionally or, uh, you know, just genuine non-remembrance. And he takes out the booklet that is covered in blood, which I find excellent. It's a very good little detail. Oh, we forgot the other booklet that has Aziraphil in it when he can't pronounce Aziraphil. Oh, yeah, it's the Book of Demons, a uh, Book of Angels on Earth, Roaming the Earth or something, isn't it called? Uh, the, 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 I forgot. The Book of Angels Roaming the Earth or You Can Find on Earth or something like that. Yeah, and he can't pronounce Aziraphale and made me think of you. And so it was funny. Aziraphafa. Aziraphafa. Yes. Sisyphe. I've been very good at this like this season, so... I'm messing with you. You have been great when it came to Zerafel. But it was very reminiscent for me for the beginning of season one. Yes. I still can't spell it properly. It's the same thing with Eminent Deal. <laughs> you and the angels with an A. <laughs> the Ace Halls. The ace holds, yes, perfect, wonderful. Sorry, we completely skipped over that. I really wanted to include it because it made me think <laughs> of how we started Good Omens. So you can put that in the bonus, I don't care. So he takes out the blood-covered booklet and then he also says, Kommen Sie rein, bitte. Come in, please. Come here, please. Come in. Rein is Come in. in. I thought and he said here. Pretty sure he says, Kommen Sie rein, bitte. Listen, you're the German. And it's actually you pretty sh- you good German. Better. It's actually pretty good, German. I thought that The accent was decent. I heard come and see here. Now I'm going to go back and listen to it again. But, but I again, I I do not speak German except for a few words. And this yes, is kind something... Es a kind of pizza is a very important sentence. Shut up. <laughs> so they come in and we have a recognition moment. I do appreciate that Aziraphale instantly recognizes our very, very disheveled zombies it's been like eight hours come on yeah and they look like shit yeah so i appreciated that and so drama rama rama and i did not see a way out of this scene because how shit zerafel is at magic listen i saw the movement he does the thing where he like pulls his sleeve a little bit when he's holding the thing really hold- i missed yes. that so okay. he he how to describe it for audio he outstretches his arm and adjusts his suit a little bit which is a move that i have seen magicians use yeah and i saw that and immediately i was like 100% he swapped the pictures i don't know how he did it so well but he has swapped the pictures. I was hoping that he would magic trick the photo out of the envelope, but 
I have been hoping for so many things Aziraphale would do <laughs> that he didn't. So I mean, girl, this directly affected him and his future. So obviously, would it though? Yeah, it would have affected Crowley. Yes, but if a word got to heaven that he's working closely with a demon, I can't imagine it being good for him either. Mm, maybe I didn't even think that far, but yeah. So he. It's better when it's for more selfish reasons. That is not a good point. Okay, so Crowley <laughs> very much does a Crowley, which is eh, none of this really matters. And he stretches out on the couch and moves his head. I really like I love Crowley's hat in this episode. Crowley's outfit, entire outfit. I love that suit as well. It's just so well. The hat is great. I wish I suit. could wear hats. My Face is not meant for hats. I disagree. I think you would. Look you have never amazing. seen me with a hat. How can you disagree? I can imagine. No, I have a very good imagination. <laughs> you you know that. I wish I could wear hats, but unfortunately, my hat is too small, and it is difficult for me to find a hat that fits me. That's why I I don't wear hats. Okay. One last thing that happens here is the zombie. They're like, oh, what about our freedom from? Eternal torture, the deal. And turns out the freedom from damnation now means that we have three random zombies wandering the streets of London. Do we though? Because the Shakespeare zombie, the Shakespeare, the Sherlock zombie already starts falling apart. Mark Gattis. I don't care. He's the Sherlock zombie. <laughs> what are the other two? The old one and the woman. <gasps> God, uh, you're the worst. I love you. Uh, yeah. Well, that's possibility that we have a bunch of body parts that are still animated somewhere around yes. London that no longer work together. Maybe this is where the hand from the Adams family comes from. Oh home. my God. Oh my God. <laughs> yes, I accept that's that as my canon. From. Okay, perfect. Nice. Nice. I'm very happy. All right, we may now go to hell. Go to hell because I don't have notes for hell. So take us to hell. This is the moment where Fro Fro. It's okay. I have accepted your issues with names. <laughs> where Furfur got it. Furfur gets in front of the Dark Council and very very proudly hands over his evidence bag, and the person there takes it out. The person it there, it, you know. Who is it? Dagon! Dagon! Oh my god, it was Dagon! Yeah! I did not recognize Dagon. Oh no. I knew it was familiar. Anyway, Dagon puts the thing back into the envelope, hands it to Furfur, and Furfur goes like, so you have openings at, you know, Temptations, right? And Dagon goes, yes, indeed we do, but you're not getting it. And Furfur obviously is like, what? And he opens the envelope and takes out the poster for the Ladies of Camelot. And we have Shucks in the background <laughs> having the most fun watching what happened. But when Furfur looks at her, she goes like, I don't know. <laughs> so, I didn't do that. Yeah. So, yeah, this is a little situation which made me believe that Shucks knew he was going to fuck up. And she decided to capitalize on whatever's gonna be the end situation. I think she that. left nothing up to chance and simply was prepared for any outcome. And we've talked about this. It wouldn't be surprising for Shucks because she indeed is very good at playing the long game. She is and a politician. She's an actual politician. She, she does knows exactly well. what she's doing. Yeah. yeah, And she's playing the fucking long game. But now 
we go into the final scene of the Minnesota. And my notes are in caps only. <sighs> I'm screaming this entire scene. Go for it. How? How? How did he manage to swap the picture? No, no. We have them sitting there and with all of our complaining, everything. And now we have them sitting there. And you don't care. And he says, I knew you would come through for me. You always do. And Crowley says, well, you said trust me. And Zerubel said, and you did. I am not okay. I am very much not okay. And then this transitions into a conversation about shades of grey, dark grey, light grey, clinking glasses, my fucking ass. Even you can't deny that this is fucking flirting. I never tried to deny that they're flirting. But you have to, like, even you see this. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of sexual tension in the room. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> it's great. And we obviously get the magic words here. Banana fish gorilla shoes oh, yeah, right. with a dash of nutmeg. <laughs> oh, that's what my, that's what my, he actually did say those words refers to. <laughs> I didn't remember. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah, I found it absolutely hilarious that yes. uh, Margatis's character is actually such a good lip reader. And I love, 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 this is where I noted it down, Crowley's entire outfit. I love the suit. I love the sunglasses. I love the hat. His hair with like an extra red streak in the middle. This episode is incredible. I am so, so in love with the entire scene. I specifically did not comment on Crowley's hair a single time because I might have slightly over-obsessed about it the last few episodes. I don't know what you're talking about. I felt like there was a hole that we needed to fill. That's what he said. Um... <laughs> So we did. So we did. Yes. I have one tiny Amazon note for this scene. And that is even more painful than the scene. Because the wine Aziraphale and Crowley are drinking is a shot enough to pop. Just like they did in season one when they get drunk. So this is their wine. Yeah. They save it for special occasions where it's just the two of them. I am not okay. I love it. It's great. At all. This makes me happier about this scene when I see your face talking about it because it's very cute. Tears! Tears in my eyes! Emotions! Okay, so with this feeling that we have, remember this feeling, Lina. Remember this feeling. I did. Until the very end. We go into present hell. Yes. And my first note is oh, they are so fucked. And then that Shucks is climbing the ladder like there's no tomorrow because there might not be. My first note on this is I'm really starting to like Shucks because I am here for a good villain. We are in agreement when it comes to that. And she has this beautiful interaction with the let me in and la 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 la. And then of course she gets in and then she is in front of Belzebub. And she reports and Belzebub is, I mean, um... Not that quick on the uptake. I'm not quite sure how Belzebub actually got their job. I don't know, but they seem to be very lax about everything that's happening. They seem to be very annoyed. Even in the last episode, we saw that. Like, not really engaged or interested in anything that happens around. Why are they in their position? That's a good question. And it especially comes into contrast when we have Shax in the same room. Because Shax is extremely driven. Yeah! Focus, purpose, priorities. Belzebub has none of those. 
Shaq's basically lasered all out so Beelzebub can agree. But of course Beelzebub does not agree because it's not, no, I don't allow it. I order you. It's like, okay, well, whatever, hun, nobody cares. For one second, I was like, are they trying to maybe not storm Zerafel's bookshop? Or what's going on? And then obviously they say, I command. Yeah, I thought they were gonna steal the idea even more as their own, but yeah. But there's one tiny moment in this scene that I need to talk about, and that is that Shex refers to Aziraphale as Crowley's pet. While in fact, it is exactly the other way around. Around. Okay, we are in agreement. It is the other way around. And that is the problem that we have. Good. If Crowley was in charge of that relationship, I think that they would be much safer. And further along. Also that. Yeah. So we end the scene with the information that there is going to be an actual siege against the bookshop, but that we don't have an answer as to how the demons will be able to enter the bookshop. This is our only saving grace. Well, that's going to change real fast. We will see. So... Mm. We go into the final scene of this episode. Israfel exiting the car and petting the Bentley on the mm-hmm. roof. Yeah, Lassie. Uh-huh. Lassie, yes. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> so Lassie obviously is totally in love with Israfel. See, this makes me want to know about how the car's magic actually works. Yes. Absolutely. But also, it is not surprising that the car is in love with Aziraphale because the Bentley is an extension of Crowley. Yeah. And so, obviously, Crowley is in love with Aziraphale, so the Bentley is in love with Aziraphale. Yeah. There was no other way. It had to happen. We have a very short interaction with Nina and the car very, very shortly following Aziraphale and then being ostracized like, oh, go back to where I parked you. It's so cute. And this is the moment, until this moment, I was very happy. Even with all the flashback issues, complaining, la 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 la. Until this moment, I was I was happy. I was willing to overlook the cold open with the bullshit that happened there. I was okay. And then the one unforgivable thing for me happens. And I know what it is. But before we get to talk about that bit, we have a quick insert with Nina getting a text from Leslie. And at this point, I am very confident to say that this is a very dysfunctional relationship and she is being extremely guilted and... uh, She's manipulated. Emotionally manipulated and abused. In this case, it's not 100% only Azrafel that I have the issue with, but it's the lack of communication and sharing vital pieces of happenings. What vital piece did Crowley not share? That Shax came to the bookshop in the last episode? I don't feel like that is vital information. I mean, it is if Azrafel shared that she came to him in the car, Crowley would have said, oh my god. Yeah. Or like he would say, he oh, replied she was here as well. But just the visit is not as high priority to me. It should come up during the next glass of wine, basically. Maybe if Crowley would have said, oh, nothing of importance happened. Uh, Shucks showed up, but I handled it. Zerafel would have been like, oh, no, she came to me as well. You know, if either of them would have brought it up. Zerafel does not know the name of Shucks. She does not introduce herself. She does. In the car. She he, she says... You have made a disadvantage. And then she says, not and her she name. And she says, yes, she says, Does I am she? Shax, the representative on Earth, replacing oh, Crowley. right. 
Yeah, no, I still refuse to put any blame of Crowley because he just got his car back and is focused on that. I understand more Crowley that he doesn't bring it up because his running in with Shucks is not as unusual. It's a demon on demon business. It does not... Also, they meet up quite often. Yeah, it's, it's demon not on demon un- business. Th- this, it's... Is, this is what I mean. It's yeah. not unusual. The fact that she is trying to get inside the shop might risen some alarms because she clearly has an inkling that Gabriel is inside. He feels secure in the fact that she can't enter without the invitation from Aziraphale. So... But, so this is why I'm saying I understand better that Crowley doesn't bring it up. I still think he should have, but I he understand why he didn't. He has more important things. But... But Zirafel should have absolutely mentioned it. The thing to me is the interaction with Shax for Zirafel was extremely out of the ordinary and it pertains explicitly to the high stake situation. Both of them though. Crowley instantly shares the other high priority situation that Zirafel will not get fucked over by heaven that he tried their Vavoom operation but it didn't work. His focus once again, is making sure Aziraphale is fine. Shex cannot enter the bookshop until Aziraphale invites her in, so why would he worry about that? It's much more important to focus on the fucking angel business. I'm just saying that this is not just Aziraphale not sharing. It's both of them not sharing. Yes, Aziraphale more likely should have shared. He absolutely should have shared, and this is absolutely his fault for not sharing. But Crowley should have mentioned it as well. No, again, Aziraphale is sharing nothing. Crowley is sharing things in order of importance. Importance. He has 10 seconds. He needs to share the most important part. He did. The Operation Vavu. They're not restrained by time right now. Yes, the episode is. <laughs> the episode is, but yeah. It's fine. It's We'll see how it goes. Hopefully, one of them says something before the meeting of the street that invites everybody inside the bookshop, including probably a whole bunch of demons. But that's probably going to be next episode's business. So do you really think it's going to be that simple that it's going to be like, oh, we're having this fucking, what was it, wicker meeting? And because the meeting is happening, they can sneak in because they're attending the meeting? I think so, yes. I will be incredibly disappointed if that is the answer. I think it's yet again a moment where Israfel is not thinking situation through. And this is an opening that if Hell or Shakt specifically gets a wind of, they will have a back door into the bookshop without storming it. I see what you're saying, but if that is the answer how the demons get in, I will be incredibly disappointed. We'll see. Maybe there's going to be some sort of a gay power that's going to help it's them. It's basically, it's um like Buffy, Spike entering, no, Jealous, some vampire entering the school because over the doors it uh, reads that those who want to learn are welcome here. Yeah. And so, oh, I want to learn and now I can pass the threshold. It's like, no, no. <laughs> An invite is an invite, not a writing over the door or a a, a slip of paper. So I will be very upset if that is it. But I fear you're right. Because you are right that it's gonna fit perfectly into Aziraphale not thinking it through. So, oh my god, I think you're right. Also, Aziraphale says it's Mm. gonna be a night to remember, which feels extremely ominous. Like that, 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 obviously, but no, oh my God, I think you're right. I don't want you to be right. Ah, I know. Oh, you no, hate no, I'm, I'm right. no, I'm dreading the next episode. <laughs> no. Do you have anything else to say to, to the last season, last episode? Uh, last scene thesis. Oh, I'm very unhappy. Aw. 
Well, let's focus on other things in my final thoughts. First of all, I want to say I will need every single closing credits version of the theme song because I don't know if you've noticed, but they do different styles of the theme song as a closing credit. So last time, because we were in Edinburgh, it was on bagpipes. What? I did not notice that. This time the version was in swing orchestra and I believe that the first two must have been something as well, which I didn't clock which exact one it was, but it goes with the theme of the episode. So I will need all these versions. Thank you very much. I always pause instantly when the credits start and exit the episode. So I never listen to it because I'm so terrified of the next episode starting, you know. <laughs> there is a Amazon screen before the episode actually starts. So, you know, you're safe. Yeah, good point. Yeah, no, sorry. Okay, damn. Thank you for pointing it out. Overall, I have to admit this episode has not left me with the best of feelings. As much as I enjoyed the Minnesota, we really got about five minutes. That was an estimate. It's actually what we said, eight or nine minutes of plot move in real time. And I am anxious about the little that we've got. First of all, because it was so little. And second of all, every single thing that we've got was anxiety inducing. Shucks. Yeah. Shucks was fun to have around until this episode. Now she's just a very, very, very good threat. I want to explore the whole car and how that kind of magic works now. And I desperately need the husbands to communicate better. Yeah, communication not happening in shows is like one of the tropes I'm mostly exasperated on because it's such a standard bullshit and it's lazy storytelling for me. And I expect better of Neil and the team, so yeah. Let me wrap this up. This episode has nearly no episode and is mostly Minnesota. I don't think I'm actually on board with that. Don't get me wrong, the Minnesota or Megasode was interesting, it had insight, but why frame it as the Minnesota? It's not even intercut with the actual episode like the other episodes were, but rather it's framed by it. The normal episode, also very frustrating to me because Aziraphale is frustrating to me with his inability to lie to Shax and his not right away telling Crowley what happened. The Minnesota is beautiful and painful and perfect on many levels, but like I said, the zombies fell totally flat for me and Aziraphale has both actively and with no fault of his own Crowley risk life and limp for him. And this is getting really old, really fast. Given that we only have two more episodes left, it makes sense that we now have a pending doom with a legion of hell demons about to storm the bookstores. Now that you basically told me what is going to happen because it's the only thing that makes logical sense, I dread it even more. Nope. I assume that in that chaos that is going to ensue with the demons storming the bookstore, Nina and Maggie will somehow fall in love as well because I'm pretty sure despite the fact that our husbands are trying to make them fall in love, they're not going to succeed, but it's still going to happen. Like, that is my prediction. Which is very on brand for good omens, to be exactly. fair. Like, that makes sense. Finally, what the fuck is going on with Gabriel? Nobody knows, and we definitely did not learn anything about this this episode. And I'm annoyed. So, this episode was a roller coaster of emotions. I am exhausted. Two more to come. And with this, we say thank you for listening. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us as The Apple of Truth on Twitter and Instagram. We will keep you updated if and when 
Twitter crashes and burns. You can also send us your comments and complaints to goodomens at taot-podcast.com. If you want to get that sweet, sweet extra content, early episode release and more, like six seasons of another show more, head to patreon.com slash taotpodcast. And if you like what you hear, please do write us a positive iTunes review. They help a ridiculous amount. And don't forget to pester all your friends about us. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye.